Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more at light.com forward slash partnerships. That's L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Please don't forget to join us for a live episode taping today, September 9th at 3 p.m. Pacific. Our guest this time will be Jiyoon Kim, award-winning classical pianist, podcast host, and author of Whenever You're Ready, which is out now from Greenleaf Books. In Whenever You're Ready, Jiyoon gives readers a personal glimpse into her life, shares wisdom and insights she's gained from her experiences, and shows people how to achieve their own personal and professional success. For more details, go to spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. Today, the spotlight is on Gabrielle Basha and the work of American scholar Joseph Campbell. Gabrielle is the communications manager for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. We talk about Campbell's work in the field of comparative mythology, his theory of the monomyth, and what this all has to do with modern culture and entertainment. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Lawrence. Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I am on top of the world. Oh, that's great. Yeah. What a great way to start. Well, mainly because I've been looking forward to this conversation um, ever since you uh, agreed to do it. So. Oh, um, well, thank you very much. I, I've been looking forward to it, too. <laughs> I'm a little besides myself. Like, it's uh, um, a really exciting uh, set of, I think, conversations we're going to have. And I think it's something that uh, listeners of this podcast are really going to dig. So awesome. um, with all that pressure heaped on you now, um, <laughs> I'll jump in. Um, Sweet. Where am I talking to you from? Where are you based? Uh, I am, uh, if you're thinking about the whole world, I usually say Boston, Massachusetts. If you already know the Boston area, Arlington. So, oh, okay. Yeah. I, uh, I'm from Connecticut originally, so I'm a New England. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you got some New England information already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I tell people, I, I grew up right outside of New Haven, which was, um, it's like the Mason-Dixon line of New England. And <laughs> some people lean their sympathies towards Boston and related sports teams and food. And some people are more leaning towards New York. And it's like uh, houses divided. <laughs> yep. I actually, I grew up in Vermont. And so we don't have our own sports team and it's very divided. You got to make a choice basically right off the bat. So. Yeah, I love Vermont. I miss it. Uh, I mean, I'm just outside of Seattle right now, and uh, Vermont's just stunning. Such yeah, it's place. a great spot. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure that uh, we do save time to come back and talk a little bit um, about you and your background and your involvement uh, with the foundation. But I was hoping maybe to jump in and ask you uh, to set the table a little bit for listeners and um, – can you explain the concept um, or the meaning behind monomyth? Absolutely. So I can start by talking about who Campbell was a little bit. So sure. Joseph Campbell was a mythologist, um, an author, and uh, an educator. Um, we're talking about mostly the 50s, 60s, 70s is when a lot of his work mostly came out. 
Um, and yeah, monomyth is definitely, if you know anything about Campbell, usually it's either monomyth, uh, follow your bliss as like a disembodied <laughs> Campbellism, which we can talk about too, um, or hero with a thousand faces. So those kind of three doorways into, into Campbell, um, they all converge. So the monomyth is this concept that actually Campbell took from James Joyce, who uh, he had a lot of influence in his life uh, back and forth. I mean, his second book was uh, Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake. So there was just so much going on there. Um, but yeah, so this monomyth is this concept that across all cultures, there is this commonality, this common uh, hero's arc um, in these heroic stories. And Campbell posited um, in his book, which came out, I believe, uh, 49, he said that, you know, across all these different stories, there's, there's a pattern that emerges. And we can look at it as, as one monomyth. And it's, you know, he, he created this circle uh, that's broken down into, into three main segments, which is separation, initiation, and return. That's the hero's journey. Um, so pretty broadly, uh, that's where a lot of his work stems from, is talking about uh, specific myths. He talks a lot about um, everything from Western culture, Greek myth to Asian uh, mythology and um, touches on African a little bit, but mostly he's kind of comparing East and West. Uh, so I hope that's a good <laughs> overview. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So if, if you take that, that overlay, if you take that circle and were to superimpose it on, um, on stories from various cultures, um, it's a common archetype it's a common story archetype that we see um repeated and it's common yeah. yeah yeah i will i will say just to jump in a little bit is that um campbell is a really controversial figure um and a lot of people uh don't don't really approve of this monomyth theory as well in in culture uh sorry folklore circles um and one of those reasons is that you know he was a mythologist but he wasn't necessarily you know, an anthropologist, he wasn't looking at the stories that didn't fit that structure. Um, so I just want to kind of right off the bat say, there is certainly a pattern here. Um, it may not be as as stark a, a pattern as Campbell himself thought. Mm -hmm. So there are many stories, especially those not the Western canon, um, that don't fit this, this uh, kind of template that he set out. Yeah, no, I appreciate you proactively saying that because that was, um, you know, there's certainly that strand of thought that um, maybe there was some bias selection in the in the stories that were looked at or the myths that were chosen to fit the fit the theory. But all of that aside, I would say two things. One would be it's it, I think it's always helpful, right, to have somebody from outside a discipline take a look at the discipline, um, or to challenge some of the assumptions and and sort of conventions of a, of a discipline. So we could say whether or not that was going on here. Um, but the other is, um, it seems at least in the West um, to be common enough to still be meaningful and carry weight. Would that be fair? Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are influenced by Campbell, who we will definitely talk about, um, have really taken that and run with it. And um, so not only is he drawing from things like fairy tales, he talks about fairy tales a fair amount. Um, and kind of things that have been passed down orally. Um, his first inspiration was actually Native American myth, um, which again, through a, a current lens, looks a lot different to us now. Um, 
knowing what we know, understanding what we understand about uh, these dominant cultures coming in and sort of, you know, shaking up uh, the the mythological snow globe, I guess, as it were, you know, this isn't, this isn't some pristine pool that we're drawing from to get these stories. This is all a lot of, um, a lot of impact here in the U.S. Um, and other places that have seen colonization. But I just, I wanted to say that too, to say, you know, yes, it is very common. Yes, we see these a ton in the West before and after Campbell's work. Um, and even here, there are some things that kind of stick out. So there's so much to appreciate about what he's written. And there's so much more that I think if he was still around, he would want to build on too. When you're talking about the outsider or the colonizer's impact on the native people and their stories, uh, is it that the colonizer brings their worldview to the stories and then says, oh, I, you know, I, I've heard this local story and my filter says it's saying this as opposed to what the actual source is saying. Is I, can you unpack that for me a little bit? Sure. That's a massive part of it. The other huge part is just, you know, regular old erasure. So we'll have things that, you know, languages don't exist anymore. There are people who, you know, residential schools, you know, we don't have to get into that today, but it, it is a whole world of uh, stories lost. Um, and I think that is something that it was really, you know, it really affected Campbell in a way that it's not, we, it's not the same language we'd use today, but I think there are glimpses of his work where he talks about being inspired by, from a young age, uh, Native American storytelling and myths and religions, um, that really there's a through line in, in understanding kind of what could have been in terms of uh, mythologies we'll, we'll never get to see. Yeah. What was his introduction to that culture or to those stories? He actually, so he was a child and he went to a Buffalo Bill show. And uh, this is the, the, his own, his own personal mythology, right? <laughs> it was, it was uh, early 20th century. He, he was introduced to this Buffalo Bill Wild West show and just was mesmerized. And I think that to me is the perfect example of like, how stark are these archetypes, right? You have the archetypal Indian warrior, and then you have the archetypal, you know, American cowboy. And it's just this immediate, almost like that um, Commedia dell'arte, you know, of, of Italy and all these different mythologies. You know, American has, Americans, Western immigrants to America, especially, have brought all those things over from Europe and put them into this new context. So, yeah, so he, uh, he was quite taken with that. That's so interesting. That that um, that's an interesting arc that I don't know if I have a therefore, but given the impact that Campbell and his thinking had on modern entertainment, it's it's so interesting that his introduction came through a an entertainment form. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know what to do with that, but that's fascinating. Um, what what is it about the concept of the monomyth that is one important and two that is so activating in mm. people what is it people are responding to well that's a good question i think what i would say right off the bat is that people love to see how myth impacts their lives 
And if you are the hero of your own journey, which is something Campbell talked about a lot, a lot of it was personal mythology. Um, the more he wrote, the more he spoke, you really hear this coming out in his lectures about your own personal mythology. And if you have this wonderful structure of this hero arc, you're somewhere in the back of your mind, whether you're thinking about it consciously or unconsciously, it's very attractive to have this beautiful circle <laughs> with broken up, you know, and so you're able to see if I am in the separation or departure part of my journey, if things are hard and I'm going through the initiation part of my journey, there's going to be a return. There's going to be some kind of dinner like some kind of closure that we get to find. And I think uh, narratively, it's just a very easy way to think about our lives. And again, as Westerners, we're used to seeing this arc. Um, it's very easy for us to to kind of project it onto ourselves. Uh, Campbell even talked about projecting this onto kind of like the life cycle of a culture or a people um, as this separation, initiation, return. So hero's journey is not even just for individuals, not even just for narratives, but really you can look at it through almost any of these lenses um, with this, this different distance and scope. So I think that's very attractive to people. Before we get too much further in, could could you just unpack a little bit the three components? Can you explain what separa separation, initiation, and return mean, either, you know, illustrative examples or just, you know, help the audience understand what you mean when you say that? Absolutely. One of the um, examples that's a really common go-to is actually Tolkien. So talking about, you know, the, the journey in the Lord of the Rings. So imagine separation. Separation can be broken down into... Um, in there is, let's see, so a call to adventure, you know, you're being, you get something at the start of the journey, the, the world is established, and then something happens, something out of the ordinary. And that leads you to a decision. You either answer the call or you deny the call. Most of the time, much like, you know, our hobbit friend, there's going to be some denial, there's going to be somebody who's not quite ready to go. Uh, there's going to be roadblocks. Um, but then eventually you do go on the journey. Something comes through, something changes, and the hero has to change for that to happen or at least become open to change. Sometimes it's against their will. Sometimes it's something they're not in control of, uh, but that's sort of the separation. It's separation from life as we know it. Um, initiation is the real alchemy. That's where you know mm -hmm. all of the story pushes into this what has to be taken apart to be put back together? What is the hero going to go through that makes them heroic? Um, how are we going to see this progression of this character? And what does that mean? And that's the part that I think people really relate to. And we have so many idioms in our culture about, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And so I think it's really, really resonant with folks to, to have this. Well, you know, this is my trial by fire. And then you have return. So return is beautifully created in uh, most of the graphics you'll see. If you look up any hero's journey picture, it's usually represented with the, the return doesn't quite match up to separation in this circle um, because you don't return to the same place. You return someplace different. Even if it's familiar, even if you're geographically in the same spot, there's always going to be a change. And that's, that's why we read stories, right? I think that's, that's what we're looking for. We're hoping that there's change. If there's no change, you know, what was this journey for? Yeah. Can you, so 
I think the separation and the return are the easiest to understand even in the abstract, right? And you, oh, yeah. even the way you describe the initiation, um, you know, being magical or alchemical, that's, that's a little bit harder to pinpoint. Is, it is. The initiation the ordeal or is it a ritual? Is it a process? Like what is, what is the initiation in the story? Yeah, it can be any of those things. I mean, the initiation might have been the entire journey to Mordor. You know, it was like the entire journey might have been the initiation. Or in a different story, it could have been one point. That's not quite as common. I would say it's more common to have initiation really encompasses the journey. Um, and it's definitely, it's, it's points where you don't know. I mean, if it's a story, you know, the hero is probably going to make it out okay. Um but it does, it does, it's the part where your, your chest tightens, you know, you're not, you're not super sure everyone's going to come out of this all right. Um, and obviously in your own life, that's, you're, you're really hoping for that return. And what is the initiation typically into? Is it a, is it a, it, it's, it's knowledge or wisdom the character didn't have before? Is that like, what's the, what's the it there? Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. It's, it's personal growth, isn't it? It's, it's a personal knowledge. And this, I think, is where most people will see themselves as, in the monomyth, is that there's personal growth. It's not about, you know, losing a leg, being in danger physically, although that is definitely part of it. But it's about realizing something about yourself. And whether that something is, I'm stronger than I thought, whether that something is, I need more support than I thought. You know, I think there's a personal revelation that needs to go through initiation to make it effective in order to uh, then return to a different place. And the physical peril is often just the story device to heighten the reality for the viewer and the character. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think scary things happen in, in our lives, and that's very easy to, to make that direct parallel. But most of the time, I think our initiations and our personal journeys are not quite as flashy. And we're, we're dealing with all these sorts of initiations all the time. So, you know, it's not <laughs> how nice would it be if we had one arc where there was just, you know, the initiation part of our lives, and then we got to return and enjoy our retirement. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, we're, we're constantly being initiated. Our are ritual and symbol a component of mythology, or are they um, are they on the same plane? Hmm. Ritual and symbol. You thinking like a symbolic part of a story, like something metaphorical? Yes. Yes. And yeah. the and the ritual as I mean, my understanding was that a ritual is play acting. The mythology, making it real for the community, but I, that's a very uninformed sort of self-taught yeah. understanding. I, <laughs> so. I like that, though. I, well, I hadn't thought about it. I think that really is performing initiation, right? It's those things that aren't flashy. You know, a ritual is a good way to delineate because we have all these initiations that sort of can pass us by, or they're a realization on a train. You know, they're not they're not very good on screen. So uh, the initiation can can definitely be marked. By a ritual. I mean, marriage. That's a great example. The, the ritual of marriage is 
a huge thing. We invite all our friends and family so that everyone can see this union that most of the time, you know, emotionally has already happened and already been there. Um, so in our daily lives, that's that's probably a good example of a type of initiation that is a sort of representation of the alchemy that's already taken place. Um, and in terms of symbol, I think that that's sort of a tool for ritual. I think that that's a good way for us to find parallels. I mean, it's our nature across cultures. This is true, of course. It's human nature to try and find patterns and to uh, to recognize commonalities. And so if we find a symbol um, that means something to us, largely we'll, we'll share it through our mythology. You know, uh, I believe it's... Um, like Japanese culture, uh, they have the mythology of the rabbit in the moon. And so there's all this rabbit imagery around the lunar cycle. And, and, and that's something that is different other places, but that's a symbol that they've adopted to mean shorthand for them to, to be, you know, for their culture, that is shorthand for our culture. And, you know, my personal culture, it's going to be different. Um, Campbell has this amazing quote. That's probably one of my favorites, um, from power of myth, where he says that, uh, Dreams are private myths and myths are uh, public dreams. And that's always stuck with me because we do have sort of our own vocabulary um, of, of symbolism and we have it personally and we have it as a culture. So just tapping into that, um, you have to know the language of symbols that you're, that you're working in to be effective. So along those lines, and to, to use your example, what role does the story, just, as, just to use as one illustrative point, what role does the story of the rabbit and the moon play in the Japanese culture? What is it, what's it doing for people who experience that story and who pass it on? You know, I, I shouldn't use that example because I don't know as much about Japanese culture and uh, this particular myth, but it's the first one that popped in my head. Um, I was thinking about rabbits earlier and, and the, the rabbit is, it's such an interesting one because it, it communicates against so many different types of uh, people in different cultures and means something different in each of them. Um, but I guess if I was going to compare it to other stories, you know, uh, this may be an origin story. Um, it may be, you know, something that we can connect to our, our own, um, the creation of the moon, I believe, is the, the litmus of this particular story. But it's, it's not meant to be taken literally, of course, but it does have some really strong imagery that's immediately appealing to us. And um, it's easy to talk about this as a family uh, unit as well, because if we're thinking about, you know, long before we were writing screenplays and, and talking about the books that we're reading, we were sitting around fires and talking about stories and passing them on. So how do these stories stay, um, stay in our minds? And I think images are, are sticky and that's what helps us kind of create community is sharing these stories and the stories need to exist on their own without necessarily uh, having text um, attached. Mm -hmm. so that would be my best guess. Again, I don't know why I picked an example that I wasn't too sure about. That's what, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the answer didn't have to be about that. Yeah, but to, um, just to sort of finish up some of the, the, the definition or, or context setting, um, is the role of myth to it's to make sense of the how and why of existence for people. Is that like, is there, do you have a pithy one liner as to what the role of myth is? 
I have my opinion, which is, yes, um, I believe myth brings us together. I think myth is the through line through which we communicate our past, our hopes for the future, and who we are as people. It's about as pithy as I get. Yeah. And what role does fear play in myths? Because so many of the myths seem to play on, you know, whether there's a monster or whether the initiation process is scary. Like, how does fear play into into? Gosh. So many ways. Um, actually, this is one of the things I actually studied uh, during my MFA. I talked a lot about uh, horror and the tension that's important in storytelling, um, either through horror or, or other types of tension. But horror tension, especially in myth, um, it, it works in a couple different ways. One, it's just fascinating. It's just fun. People really need to be hooked. A really good way to hook somebody is to make them frightened of what's going to happen next, not necessarily for themselves, but you know, myth when it's connecting to your, your, you to your culture and, and you to something that maybe might be allegory. Um, little fear is always a good hook. Um, it's also appropriately cautionary. So if there's a myth that is, you know, trying to portray some type of um, moral that's important to the culture, it's going to be, once again, it's going to be a lot stickier if it really has... Um, an emotional reaction. And one of the easiest emotional reactions is fear. So it's very visceral. Um, that feeling sticks with us physically uh, in our bodies, um, hard to forget. Um, so those right off the bat, I would say, are, are probably how fear pops up so, so frequently. Yeah, sort of the notion of like the cautionary tale. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's like, what, you know, what do we take away from that? And, and when do we reexamine those, uh, those tales that we grew up with and decide if those messages are still relevant? So many of them are based in worlds that we don't live in anymore. You know, do they still have, do they still have a message that's worth sharing? Because we definitely still, you know, share the stories. So I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's something I think about a lot. You talked earlier about, I, I think you use these words. If not, I, I put them together in my head as you were speaking. So I'm going to put them back in your <laughs> mouth, which was um, the types of mythology. And you mm -hmm. talked about, you know, personal mythology. There's obviously our, our shared cultural mythology. Um, but I wanted to use that notion as a way to talk about um, modern mythology. And, yeah. and the, the types of mythology, you know, on the one hand, I think of um, probably the obvious one being, you mentioned Tolkien or, or superheroes, you know, the, mm -hmm. that, that pop culture mythology maybe. Um, but then I, I, I envision sort of a spectrum of um, like, where does urban legend fit? And then urban legend sort of moves a little bit towards um, I don't know what's just sort of left of center in urban legend, but I think of things like cryptozoology. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then a little bit further afield from that is like the little green men. Um, and then maybe that sort of, I guess maybe there's a circle there because then all of that comes back around to like, I'd have to think like conspiracy thinking is part of a modern mythology like can you help me unpack that a little bit like that that spectrum or that sphere or whatever the metaphor is for 
for the types of modern mythology and what they do to us in real time as they're developing? Absolutely. I mean, this is something, of course, that's on all of our minds as mythology is being invented right in front of us. And, you know, new conspiracies are popping up all over the place. And, you know, we're just trying to keep up. Um, This, to me, is an example of rather than having a myth that tells you about a fear, this is a mythology created around a fear that already exists. And so Mm. there are mythologies more on the conspiracy side that are rampant now because people are connecting yay mythology brings us together you know sometimes there are some dark sides to that people can share things that aren't healthy people can share things that are outright wrong and take them literally and i think there really comes a danger when we start taking things literally that are meant to be metaphorical meant to teach us something that's not that's not as concrete as we're taking it so of course there's a long history of taking metaphors literally that we we don't necessarily have to get into but the spectrum you're talking about makes me think of the spectrum of what we consider you know what we used to call highbrow and lowbrow right so Mm. somebody might argue that uh you know marvel movies are not uh high art fine Um, someone might argue that this newest literary fiction is high art. What if they're telling the same story? What if they have the same arc? What if they have the same emotional attachment? Does that mean that one is more, you know, fully developed than the other? Um, I don't think so. I think with this new democratization of, of having our voices on the internet, being able to have podcasts, you know, have all these ways to connect with a really, really broad audience, um, it really asks us to change the way we talk about story and about art and about who gets to tell it and what that means for where it falls in the spectrum. Because if you're telling a story that you heard from your grandfather who heard it from his grandfather and you, and you tell it to me, is that an urban legend? Is it a tall tale? You know, is that, is that folklore? It's hard to say because, um, people have different opinions about where all this falls. I think my my fascination has always been around um, folklore, especially being a New Englander. Um, I actually grew up in the Catskill Mountains in New York and then moved to New England. And so there's this whole world of, you know, Washington Irving, who is a writer, and there's all this literary work. But it came from Dutch folklore. A lot of the stories came directly from Holland with the immigrants and kind of were planted in New York and then bloomed into American folklore. So it's hard to say where where the line is because all of it really cross-pollinates. And that's what's exciting, you know? What is so, it about the Dutch? Didn't they invent Santa? Oh, man, the Dutch. Their stories, yeah, they invented a ton of things. I, a lot of fairy tales that we keep on keep on telling are Dutch. And <laughs> do you have those. does anything in your academic background or in your study sense give you any indication as to why? What was it about their culture or? Well, uh, I can say from my general understanding of American folklore, um, very general, cursory. <laughs> I will say. Tons of Dutch immigrants came and settled uh, quite early on in on the East Coast of the U.S. Mm-hmm. They really stayed. They, you know, New York, all of these, all of the Northeast was really um, Dutch German, and so all of these stories really stayed put. Um, 
and perpetuated. And just like, you know, the Washington Irving uh, blossoming of the Headless Horseman and, you know, Rip Van Winkle and all these things, it's, it's a very rich place where the community really stayed very tight um, and not much interrupted it. And as it was undisturbed, I think a lot of those stories just kept being perpetuated in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have been if, um, you know, like the Irish, for example, were were not able to have uh, solid communities like that when they came over. It was much more, you know, scattershot. Um, so social social patterns and um, class have a lot to do with whose stories get told and, and which ones are perpetuated and, and reformed and retold and, you know, why we still tell Cinderella, but not, you know, other, other stories that may have gotten lost in um, the colonial shuffle. So the problem with my question is that it has less to do with the Dutch and the power of their stories and the fact that it could have been whoever settled there. Um, if it had been, if the Irish had gotten there first or the Italians had gotten there first, it would have been their stories that would have Perhaps. been formed. Yeah, maybe. I mean, who's to say? I think there are so many different components. It, it could have been. It could have been, yeah. And um, even, even with that, we, we'd still see those same patterns. We would still see, you know, the monomyth. We would still see the hero's journey pop up because we do. We look at uh, poets, you know, we, we talked about Parsifal, um, which is a, a epic poem uh, romance that, that we talked about at length last month. It was sort of our theme for the site. And um, I mean, that was written in the 13th century and that is German. And how many times have you heard this story? Like, it's a grail legend, sure, but there are so many stories that come from Italy, that come from France, um, that, so Western Europe really has all these similarities that, that tie together. So, yeah, I think, I think we, we would see really similar patterns, even if it wasn't the Dutch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in Western Europe, how, because it's a relatively, I don't want to say modern, but recent culture, um how how far back can we go um with any certainty before sort of history and documentary evidence completely falls apart like how far back can we trace things to their sources that's a great question i don't have the answer to that i think that would be a really fascinating project to dive into because so many things that we still talk about like atlantis you know came from yeah. plato so it's you know, and, and that's another good example because so many cultures have a story about a sunken city. You know, did that start with Plato? The Romans were all over the place. They, they carried uh, stories like they carried, you know, other goods. So it's, it's incredible to see what you can trace about who was where when uh, based on where stories are. But unfortunately, I don't know kind of how far back that would, that would take us. Is there, a, uh, in, in the story of the sunken city in particular, is there a characteristic or that is there a thematic characteristic across those stories that you're aware of? Like if what's the lesson that we're being communicated or, or yeah, what lesson is being communicated to us? What, what, what warning are we be given? What, what insight are we being given? Is it, is yeah. it that the city was punished for its wickedness? Like what, what's going on there? Effectively. I mean, and that's a, that's a great example of how this, how these stories change and snowball and, and become something totally different because Plato did write this as a very clear fiction. Um, if you, if you look back at his writing, it was never meant to be 
some indication that that it was true. It was a parable. It was something that this city was, um, I believe it was, I think it was just destroyed by the gods to, you know, for whatever reason, for, for some, some crime perhaps committed, some, some clearing of the board. Um, but it really has become this like search for Atlantis and it really misses the entire, or, you know, maybe it doesn't miss the point. You know, I take that back. It creates a new point. Is it, is it not relevant to us anymore to have a story that tells us be careful because your city could be wiped off the face of the earth by a rogue wave. I personally would not say that that's irrelevant <laughs> in our current society and current circumstances, but I do understand the pull, the mystery. It's like Amelia Earhart is another one. You know, where are they? Where is she? How did, you know, how did they get there? Isn't even necessarily something that we're interested in. Um, and, you know, they found evidence of, of where Amelia Earhart ended up and it, got buried in the news cycle so we don't want to know even when you even when you find out it's like all right well okay well that's that's all yeah you know it, if we found atlantis i i think it would be a 24 maybe 48 hour news cycle <laughs> yeah. Yeah. leave it to the archaeologists you know yeah it's interesting you say that because i agree i think that nobody wants to see the carcass of the loch ness monster um mm-hmm. nobody really wants to go inside area 51 um I thought it was fascinating just because as a, as a topic, I find the whole UFO thing interesting. Um, I'm not a believer in sort of that they're here from outer space or what have you. I actually think they're much more along the lines of a cultural myth. I mean, I think the, I think the little green man is the elf, is the leprechaun, is the fairy sprite, all that. And he just wears a different uniform depending on the era. Um, but... It's fascinating that, you know, over the summer, the military releases the report that says we look at, you know, I don't know, 700 cases and we can't explain 696 of them. That's pretty fascinating. You know, it's like there's an unexplained phenomenon that the world's most advanced technology cannot figure out. And we all just kind of shrug and say, yeah, well, I, of course you can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Where'd that news go? Exactly. That's exactly it. I think too, I like what you said about having this like little green men are, you know, the elves and, and all these, all these kinds of uh, parallels and folklore, because there's this understanding that um, in a lot of old stories, when someone talks about seeing an angel, um, the angel might've just been kind of their perception of what was something else. You know, it might've been, you know, if we're going into, into that realm of a uh, supernatural, maybe they saw a ghost, you know, maybe they saw an alien, maybe they saw Bigfoot, um, but to them it was an angel in whatever format. So just understanding that that's a pretty extreme example, but this language around what we talk about when we talk about mythic creatures and mythic symbols, um, a lot of the time, it's possible we're talking about really similar things or the same thing and, and just using different language for it and looking through a totally different cultural lens based on our time and our experiences. What was, what if anything did Campbell have to say about the physical manifestation of some of this stuff? And I'm not saying like, how did he feel about UFOs or anything like that, but it was more about, did he have, did he have opinions about metaphysics and about, the the existence of alternate realities or was he so was he just rooted in culture i wish i had a a more concrete answer my my perception is that he was 
pretty conservative in how he would talk about uh, other worlds. It was always very metaphorical. It was always about, you know, he was, I mean, he was young and so it was a lot about the psyche and, you know, how these archetypes are actually part of us. So it was more, less about external worlds and more about internal worlds. And um, in that sense, I think that he would have gotten a kick out of this conversation because there's so much crossover there and there's so much that we are bringing externally that um, could, could just as well be reflected into talking about ourselves, but that's usually a little bit too squishy for us. And we'd rather take things outside of ourselves and, and sort of have them in front of us to look at rather than reflect. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I wish I, I wish I knew. Yeah, it's interesting. When I went back and reread Power of Myth, it seems like there's a couple of times in the conversation, and I'm sorry I don't have the exact examples in front of me, where Moyers kind of goes right to the line with some of this mm-hmm. stuff. And then, it, and, and then Campbell kind of pulls it back into, into the, more metaphorical, uh, the more metaphorical world. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Was, uh... <laughs> the other thing that's interesting is how much intre- how, how the, the, the sort of overlap between interest in Campbell and his work and sort of like the human potential movement and the new age and how those things you know, I guess you know, they, they grew in parallel, sort of that, that mid-late 20th century world and environment. But it's very hard retrospectively to tease them apart. They're so wrapped up together. And then especially in the, the baby boomers and the post-war generation that grew up so... To even to say they were influenced by Campbell is almost too small of a way to describe it. Like he sort of is one of those people that defined the... Um, kind of the terms of the of the debate a little bit like they um i don't know if i'm articulating it well but i guess you know the example would be and i'm so sorry to use it because i'm sure it's used all the time george lucas is the example of that right he grew up he probably it it probably wasn't even until later in life that he realized he grew up in a world shaped by campbell's thinking um and then when he realized it it probably all made sense (laughs) but yeah Uh, yeah Yeah, you have just hit the nail on the head with what exactly we're trying to do in this new, you know, world of, uh, you know, the foundation's been around for 30 years, you know, what we're protecting, perpetuating, preserving, what what's next? Um, Everyone has grown up surrounded by media, surrounded by all kinds of mythic symbols that Campbell talked a lot about, if not like Star Wars, were directly influenced by his work. A lot of people now don't know that, you know, so how can we open the door just like Lucas had, you know, his eyes open when he read Here with a Thousand Faces and said, oh, my God, this is all stuff that I, I knew and I didn't know I knew. And this is a framework for, for thinking that helps me kind of stretch beyond where I was. Um, and that's what I think can keep happening. I think I, I think it's not just Campbell, but Campbell is such a wonderful start for anybody who's trying to think about any any type of narrative, whether they're a writer, whether they're you know in filmmaking or any kind of art, um, but also just somebody who's you know a CEO, you know somebody who's really thinking about where am I going? Am I challenging myself? You know, is this bringing me bliss? And you know, bliss is not you know, uh, unfiltered joy, but bliss is, is the thing that you are supposed to be doing. Is this bringing me to the place I'm supposed to be? Later in his life, uh, Campbell quipped, he's like, well, I should have said, follow your blisters, because that's really what I meant. <laughs> and that's the, that's the one I, I, I like to 
think back to. It's not because it's easy. It's not because it's blissful and easy. It's because it's what you're supposed to be doing. So yeah. I think there was Lucas some good, found that. There was some good stubbornness in his, um, his refusal to back down from the criticism about follow your bliss. Uh, that was another thing that struck me rereading Power of Myth is that there were times in, the, in that conversation or in those series of conversations with Moyers where he went out of his way to sort of defend that notion. He, he, he was not compromising on that point. Right. Um, yeah. And um, his, his wife was Jean Erdman, who was an incredible dancer, um, married for a very long time. He met her at Sarah Lawrence College when he was teaching there. And um, through her and her incredible work as well, he really refined his ideas of, of what that means, what bliss is. And I think he was thinking about her when he was thinking about blisters as well. It's like, you know, who, who, who is a more structured and determined athlete than a professional dancer? You know, the combination of physical, like physical need to, to be a certain strength and uh, aesthetically, like, you know, it's, it's incredibly demanding, but people do it because they love it. That's, it's that's fascinating. So he had, he lived with a firsthand example of his sort of thinking and mm -hmm. life. Yeah. Yeah. She's um, an incredible woman too. So whole other podcast on Gene Urban. Well, I would like to take you up on that. Um, <laughs> tell me about the work of the foundation. So how does the foundation interface with the world? Like, are there programs? Is there education? You talked about, you know, does it interface with the entertainment industry? Does it interface with business? I'd love to learn a little bit more about the work of the foundation. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for asking. We are currently doing a major overhaul on our site to better highlight all the things that we're doing. Um, it's going to be uh, going live this fall, which we're very excited about um, because we have incredible outreach. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. John Booker, um, has uh, created the MythMaker Podcast Network. So we have, I think, three, possibly four podcasts now that are a part of that. Some of them are made in-house, some of them we've partnered with. Um, and he himself is really connected to the um, entertainment industry. That's the kind of thing that we're, that we're kind of putting out into the world is, is people who um, are working for the foundation who have their, their hands in all these different places. Um, really, it, it all connects. And so with the, myth, uh, the mythological podcasts, uh, that's one big branch. Um, the other work we do is really around, uh, like I said, protect, perpetuate, and preserve the work of Campbell. Um, so I spent the summer kind of digging through some archives at the Harvard Divinity School to find a bunch of things that we don't have in our archives yet. So that's one of the things that if you're buying uh, access to anything on the Campbell site, you're helping us do things like that. Um, so we're really looking forward to all the other ways we're going to be branching out. But in the meantime, it's really uh, Campbell and culture is a section on our site that we've been beefing up. It's something that uh, we've all really put a lot of, of time and thought into seeing all these small ways, whether, you know, I, uh, Ted Lasso, uh, Jason Sudeikis mentioned uh, Campbell in an interview. Um, so we put that on there. Um, just kind of pulling out all these threads of especially in entertainment, but all over the place where where we see Campbell's legacy is um, is really deeply rooted. It's always what's, so exciting to find something new like that. What's the goal with the archive? Are you attempting to build the definitive, I, you know, you will have one of everything in-house or 
And is it a research library? Is it something the public can interface with? What, what's, the, what's the goal there? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a lot of things that we haven't even seen. Uh, he gave a lot of talks in, let's see, the early 70s, late 60s at Harvard. And um, there are records, recordings um, of, you know, lectures he gave there. Um, so it's really just piecing together this history, piecing together all all the places he had his hands as well. Um, because as you know, at the end of his life, he, he had this connection with even like the Grateful Dead. And so there's so much there. Mickey Hart's book club has a book club and he just uh, did, I believe he did Here With A Thousand Faces um, in July. So it would be great if we could have everything that that he ever participated in so we can keep building this this full picture of who Campbell was because I never met him. Um, many of us now working at the foundation have never met him, but mm. the people who started the foundation did. And so what's the goal in, in, in preserving this at all? You know, why not have all the pieces? We can put everything together. We can create this timeline. Maybe we'll find something that, you know, jumps out in a way that it, it didn't in 1973. Yeah. Before I ask you a bit about your, hero's journey to get to the Campbell Foundation. Um, how, did, how did Campbell's thinking evolve or asked differently? Did it ever sort of stop evolving and he sort of developed a static thesis? Or was he modifying... Yeah, I, I don't I hope I'm asking the question clearly. Like, yeah. you know, is there new scholarship to be uncovered? Like, as you go through these talks, are there, are there are there surprises in that regard, or is it simply this Tuesday's version of the lecture versus the one he gave last March? Like, how do you how do you <laughs> approach that? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I, I haven't gotten to dig too deep into the most recent things that we found, but it has been absolutely. You can see the arc um, of Campbell. He started. From what I from what I've read and understood about him and his life, he really started pretty pretty conservatively, and he was really playing very close to Young. He was, you know, James Joyce. That was his second book, Skeleton Keys. So he started to branch out. Um, Follow Your Bliss is a a later Campbellism. That's that's something worth noting. Um, he got more into understanding the pop culture that was happening around. Um, he thought that Star Wars was a masterpiece. He loved it. He watched all three movies in the same day. He insisted on seeing them all in the same day and just was so delighted by them. Um, and that's something that I don't, I don't see based on what I understand of Campbell's early life that that would have resonated with him. Um, I think of course, it's part of seeing your work reflected back in such an incredible way. Um, but it's also part of, uh, his getting older and kind of, and kind of seeing this flexibility in, in what we can all believe. I mean, if we can jump to the Grateful Dead uh, just for a second, he, um, Joseph Campbell was able to, um, through this very bizarre like chance encounter, uh, get connected with the dead and went to one of their shows very late in his life in the mid eighties. And he, <laughs> there's actually some really great pictures of him sitting on stage, like at the side while they perform, which is just, just fantastic. Uh, so, <laughs> What was he wearing? I, I need to know what he was wearing. <laughs> not, what, I mean, not Grateful Dead attire. <laughs> Disappointingly, I mean, we had the opportunity to see Joseph Campbell in tie dye, and just missed it. But where, where, where did he see them? Was it in California? Yes, I yeah. believe so. 
I, I am 90% sure. I'm not totally sure, but I, I believe that's where they were. Cause that's where, um, that's where he was at the time. And that's where Mickey Hart and another band member ran into somebody who knew Joe. So there was some, there was some, at least the connection was made in California for sure. Um, but his takeaway was that it reminded him of the Dionysian festivals that he just, it was this great expression of, you know, these people who are enjoying the Grateful Dead have seen the presence of God, whether that God is Dionysus or a group or of clergy, you know, or a band, you know, there's this concept of, of in Western cultures, especially, um, what we think of a singular God and how we feel in the face of them. Um, or if there's a pantheon, you know, how they interact with each other, especially if we're talking about rock groups and, you know, they don't exist in a vacuum. Um, and his appreciation of that was just uh, really delightful. He said, it's more than music, you know, this is a ritual. So, you know, that, that can kind of turn on its head what our perception of a ritual is if we were talking before about it being a metaphorical representation of an actual initiation, a rock concert is simultaneous, right? Like that's, if you've been to a concert that just blew you away, you already know that that's like a transcendent experience. Um, and that is ritual. That is, that is an opportunity to, to really connect with something higher and you don't need to put words on it. Um, and most of the time you can't. So. Did he come away from, that was his reaction to going to see them once. Like he came away that, I mean, that was his perception. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. 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 He had a very, very strong positive reaction to, to that experience. It was not his style. I think he made it very clear that it was not his style, but he, he saw the appeal. Yeah. And then he subsequently did a public appearance or, or more with members of the band. I, I, I feel like I've seen photographs of him like on stage on a panel with, with Jerry and maybe Mickey. Yes, he did. I'm not sure the extent of those, but he did He did uh, keep in contact with them and do a couple events, perhaps just one, I'm not sure, but yes. Yeah, it's really it's interesting to think that, um, you know, he left this world right before, like he would have seen so much in the following 20 years between the emergence of the internet, um, the jam band culture that the dead spawned, the Marvel universe, um, he probably would have been pretty cross about where Star Wars went, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if he'd stuck around, we would have uh, had a different outcome. <laughs> would have had a better outcome. We can only speculate at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, how did you come to, to, to work with the foundation, and um, what was your familiarity with Campbell's work um, before there, and, and, and was it part of your, uh, your master's training? Sure. Well, I got pretty lucky. Um, so I, I was introduced to Campbell, um, I want to say, I probably saw Power of Myth, uh, I think summer after my senior year of high school. So my mom was always into Joseph Campbell. We had a couple books around the house, but it was really the Bill Moyer special that was my uh, my personal pull. Um, and uh, it happened around the same time that I was introduced to John Berger. So there's this like double you know, I feel like in stereo, these voices that are telling me, like, look deeper, you know. And so uh, I went to study art history and um, went into that for my undergrad. Art history uh, really drove me to this storytelling aspect. So I got my uh, master's degree in, in creative writing and um, was lucky enough to be connected to the foundation through uh, 
somebody who's on the board. Um, and then uh, I, I stuck around and have just been so delighted to be a part of uh, the growing and, and evolution of um, this foundation. Yeah. And do you, um, do you still pursue, do you have, do you do creative work outside of your work with the foundation? I do. Yeah. Um, I write, uh, I haven't had anything uh, too big coming out yet, but I have some things on the back burner that I'm pretty excited to see uh, emerge into the world. Have you been able <laughs> Make to their initial separation and <laughs> <laughs> begin their journey? Um, exactly. Are you able to see the influence of Campbell's work or even a step removed, just the, the sort of um, validity in his theories in your own work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I see the validity and also the limits. And I think that's part of appreciating his all his work. Um, as I, I've really come to better understand, you know, you start out with this concept of the hero's journey, especially when you're a writer or you're trying to create some story yourself. Um, it can be very easy to kind of lean on it. It can be very easy to see it as a, a diagram, which was never his intention. Um, it was always meant to map onto things that already exist and talk about something that is already a commonality um, and not like a roadmap to how to build a story. Um, but that said, I mean, you can still really see the benefit in thinking, you know, I created this character and he doesn't change by the end of the story. So, so what am I missing here? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I have been able to, uh, look at ways that Campbell's work has affected me and it's, it's really been less about the hero's journey cycle and more about just the deeper works and little, little phrases that you end up taking away. And, you know, you read a book a second time and something else jumps out at you. So yeah, it really is just an ocean of information that you you can't take in all at once. I feel like uh, we could have probably done two or three. I guess that's why Power of Myth was over so many interview sessions, because um, <laughs> we probably uh, we we didn't really get into Follow Your Bliss too much, or uh, or uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. There's there's lots of other things to discuss, but I appreciate you making time to do this. Thank you, Gabrielle Basha and everyone at the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. <laughs>